My friends, and welcome back to Rock Band's podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Maliberti. Today, we're going to talk about an album that has probably topped more greatest albums of all time lists than any other. That's right, we're talking about the Beatles' legendary album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Now, I have to admit something. In all my years of being a Beatles fan, I probably overlooked Sgt. Pepper more than any other album. I always thought it was kind of overrated, over the top. I mean, I thought it was a cool album and all. But I never really got the hype. I always felt like people just said it was the best album ever just because that's what you said. That's the narrative. So I kind of went into this episode uh, a little skeptical, a little uh, wary of of how I was going to kind of tell this story. But I wanted to really get into the spirit of things and see maybe if I was wrong about Sgt. Pepper. Maybe it is better than I remember. So I went to the record store and I... I plan on buying a, a used version of Sgt. Pepper. I usually buy used. Uh, I like to get as close as the sound was uh, when the album first came out. Maybe that's stupid, but it's just the way my brain works. So I found this beat-up version of Sgt. Pepper in the record store. It was in stereo, and the colors were all faded. Uh, it, it just kind of seemed underwhelming to me. I was like, I don't. do I really want to buy this? So I put it down. And I kept looking. Then I went to the new album section, uh, where they have kind of all the new remasters uh, of all the old of all old albums. And um, I found this beautiful, brand new version of Sgt. Pepper. Uh, you know, the colors were so fluorescent and vivid. All the yellows and blues looked so cool. Uh, and on the actual plastic cover uh, of the album, it says, "As if you've never heard the album before." Now, I didn't really believe that. But I said, screw it. I'll buy this brand new remix. It just looks so cool. So I went up to the register to buy it and check out. And the record store clerk says to me, have you ever heard this remix yet? And I was like, no, I haven't. And he says, okay, I don't care how well you know this piece of music. This remix will blow your mind. And I got to say, he was right. And I was completely wrong about Sgt. Pepper all these years. Uh, It was true. This remix... Uh, made me hear bass lines that I had never really understood, guitar parts I couldn't hear over the mix, Ringo's drums were so much clearer, and the harmonies were so spectacular. I mean, it turns out that Paul McCartney and Giles Martin, George Martin's son, actually went in, and they didn't just remaster this album. They really went under the hood. They went in and polished up each individual part, made them clearer, warmer, brighter, whatever, really prepared this album to be listened to in 2021. Uh, And you can find this remix anywhere on Spotify, Apple Music, not just on vinyl, and I highly recommend it. It's it's such a great uh, sounding piece of music. And lately, the sun has been shining, it's getting warmer, springtime's here, and I feel like I've discovered Sgt. Pepper for the first time. I have a new appreciation for it that I didn't have before. And I just can't wait to get to the episode. So without further ado, if you haven't followed us on uh, Instagram at Rock Bands Podcast, that's where I do a lot of my announcements, so don't miss us on there. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And finally, share us on social media or with anyone that you know that likes rock and roll. All right, I bring you all Rock Bands Podcast, Beatles Part 6. 
After their final show at Candlestick Park in San Francisco in the August of 1966, the Beatles agreed that not only would they stop touring, but they wanted to take a real break from all Beatles business for the next couple months. George Harrison and his wife, Patty Boyd, left for a six-week trip to India in the September of 1966. George had grown increasingly interested in Indian music since he first discovered the sitar a year earlier and made a real connection with Ravi Shankar, the most famous sitar player in the world. He was also taking a lot of LSD, which led him down the philosophical rabbit hole of the self, mortality, materialism, and how to live a more examined life. Musically and spiritually, George was drawn to India. The couple arrived in Bombay, where they stayed most of the time, and left all their material belongings, clothing, watches, jewelry, at the door. George would spend most of his day as a sitar student of Ravi's, learning how to play traditional Indian classical music. Shankar didn't care too much about George's beetleness. At one point, when George got up, he set his sitar down and stepped over it. Ravi hit him and sternly told him to respect the music and never step over his instrument again. During their time in India, George and Patty also began to study the practices of yoga and meditation. George began devouring works of classical Hindu philosophy, and Ravi would bring the couple all over India, showing them historical sites and teaching them about Hindu traditions. George later said of his first trip to India, quote, It was incredible. I'd wake up in the morning and a little Kashmiri fellow would bring us tea and biscuits, and I could hear Ravi practicing in the next room. It was the first feeling I'd ever had of being liberated from being a beetle or a number. To suddenly feel yourself in a place where it feels like 5000 BC is wonderful, unquote. Ringo Starr used this time in 66 for his family. Ringo spent a lot of time with his son, Zach, and his wife, Maureen. The other family man in the band did not use this time to spend with his family. John Lennon went abroad. He'd agreed to uh, act in another Dick Lester film, the 1967 comedy about World War II titled How I Won the War. He spent a few months in Spain playing not a Beatle but a soldier named Private Gripweed. The film was well-received, and John actually took acting pretty seriously, though he likely took the job to avoid having to stay at home with his wife Cynthia and son Julian. John's life had a dark cloud over it because of how unhappy he was in his marriage. He and Cynthia barely talked, and he could be pretty impatient with his son, Julian. John would spend a lot of his days at home during this period in a psychedelic haze, either tripping on LSD or burnt out from having tripped the previous day. He'd usually be in a separate room from Cynthia, just sitting around, staring at the ceiling, watching television, reading a newspaper or magazine, sometimes lazily strumming a guitar or writing a lyric. If he was uh, hanging out with someone, it was usually a friend or Ringo. Cynthia, on the other hand, didn't take drugs, and she actually says John's drug use was really what killed the marriage. The two could no longer relate. I mean, acid really changed John Lennon. He was always that tough and cutting figure, right? He took pills and drank booze. He got in fights, chewed people out, made witty jokes. He was quick and funny. LSD really softened him. He lost that possessive, aggressive side, especially when it came to Cynthia. He was kind of whateverish in a lot of ways, and he would spend a lot of time just pondering or sitting around, kind of detached. He even lost weight, the weight that he had gained during the 65-66 period, the era which he calls his Fat Elvis phase, as he pretty much stopped drinking booze and he just smoked pot and, and used LSD. I mean, it wasn't all that bad. He was more compassionate and understanding towards people. 
And, you know, Cynthia was still close with all the Beatles' wives, and John and her did sometimes enjoy their time together. But the John Lennon that married Cynthia Powell was pretty much gone, and his time at home really proved that to both of them. One day he was hanging out with Klaus Vormann, the Beatles' Hamburg friend who also designed the revolver cover. The two, of course, used the time together to trip, but according to Vorman, John was deeply depressed and was kind of distant to his old German friend until finally he unloaded about how sad he was about his marriage. Vorman said, quote, It all came pouring out. He had this wife he didn't want to be with. He said how he was in despair, how he just wanted to disappear, just go into the ground. As he was telling me, he started to rip up leaves of a, bu- of a bush and throw them on the grass. He was so upset, he didn't realize he was tearing it to pieces. I said, John, don't take it out on the bush. The bush didn't do anything. He laughed at that and seemed to feel a bit better, unquote. During his time away from the Beatles, John also met someone who would truly change his life forever, a Japanese artist named Yoko Ono. He was told about one of her art exhibits in London in November of 1966. Yoko was setting up her exhibit, which was not open yet, when John walked in with his friend and owner of the art gallery. There was a bunch of avant-garde pieces that were kind of common with the counterculture that was in full swing at this time. Things like an apple for sale for 200 pounds, the word yes written on a ceiling which you had to climb a ladder and use a magnifying glass to read, and a piece of wood to hammer in a nail. Yoko claims to have had no real knowledge of who John Lennon was at the time, but I'm not really sure how true that is. I mean, this was, he was unusually famous, Uh, though they later said that they were attracted to one another. They didn't make some deep connection or fall in love at first sight or anything, but they became acquainted at this point. Yoko sent John a signed copy of her book of poems, Grapefruit, and the pair would occasionally correspond on the phone or in letters. The relationship between John and Yoko, though, wouldn't start until well over a year later. But all you Beatles fans know that this moment was the start of something pretty big. Paul used his time to himself. His girlfriend, Jane Asher, was uh, away for a few months in America doing a theater tour, so he was alone in London. He worked one-on-one with George Martin on the soundtrack uh, for the film The Family Way, and then he went on vacation alone. He spent most of his time wandering through France, in Paris, and then into the Loire Valley. Paul used a fake mustache to hide his fame, which actually worked. He could walk through a crowd, and nobody noticed who he was. He brought a notebook to restaurants, and he ate alone and reflected, wrote lyrics, poetry, ideas, etc. But not being famous was pretty boring for Paul. Uh, There's one story where he wanted to get into a nightclub, and they didn't let him in, so he left, took off the mustache, and came back. And they let him in, and he realized, man, there are some pretty good perks to being famous. Uh, But then he went to Spain with his friend and Beatles roadie Mal Evans to meet up with John Lennon. Uh, John had already left, so they got on a flight uh, to go back to England. Uh, And on the flight back from Spain, he and Mal were sitting next to each other when Mal said to Paul, hey, pass the salt and pepper. Paul misheard him, thinking that he said, pass the Sergeant Pepper. Paul's wheel started turning, and suddenly he had an idea for the Beatles' next album. John, Paul, George, and Ringo finally reconvened at Abbey Road in December of 1966 to begin working on their next album. 
They hadn't been together as the Beatles really since August, but in just five months, they all underwent pretty massive changes. First of all, they all looked different. For years, they were clean-shaven. Now, for some reason, they all had mustaches. John had lost weight and has considerably shorter hair since he had cut it for the uh, movie, and he also wore his glasses. Now, John was always blind as a bat, but he had resisted wearing his glasses in public since his youth. After the psychedelic 60s period, though, John would pretty much always be seen with glasses on. George also had shorter hair from his trip to India, and all four Beatles went from wearing kind of normal clothes, suits, sweaters, whatever, now fully decked out in psychedelic clothing. Everything was colorful, weird shoes, pins, feathers, hats, argyle suits, you name it. If it was weird, it was cool, and they were wearing it. The psychedelic theme would carry on to their music. The musical landscape had been changing quite a bit at this time, and the Beatles were influenced by three albums in particular. The Beatles uh, were really influenced by Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, which was kind of the biggest game in town in terms of uh, a really quality, complete album. The Beatles loved it, and they wanted to top it, especially Paul. They also listened to Freak Out by the Mothers of Invention and Blonde on Blonde, Dylan's double album. The Beatles were considered to be EMI's number one priority, and everything they had done had been so successful that this album really had no budget or due date. Whatever and whenever the Beatles wanted to release music, they pretty much had the okay. John and Paul made it clear to George Martin that they had no intention of going back on the road, so they wanted to go all out and make music that didn't need to be played live. John was the most eager to present the band with some new material, So they all went to the studio and John grabbed an acoustic guitar to show the band what he had come up with since the summer. John played them Strawberry Fields Forever, which is a song about his youth. Everyone, including George Martin, was really impressed. The lyrics seem whimsical and trippy, but it's actually a song about nostalgia. Strawberry Field was the name of a Salvation Army home near his house, and he used to play there with his friends. Living is easy with eyes closed, misunderstanding all you see. It's getting hard to be someone, but it all works out. It doesn't matter much to me. If you keep this theme of nostalgia in mind, it becomes pretty clear that the lyrics are about looking back fondly to a simpler, more naive time before Beatlemania, drugs, and unhappy marriages. Albeit, it was mixed in with some psychedelic lyrics like nothing is real and nothing to get hung about, The song's lyric also touch upon upon Lennon's self-doubt and indecision with lines like, I think I know I mean a yes, but it's all wrong. That is, I think I disagree. Strawberry Fields Forever is easily one of John's highest lyrical achievements to this day. Now, Lennon was usually pretty ruthless when it came to judging his Beatles songs, especially uh, in the period right after the Beatles, but this was one that he always was quite proud of and referred to it as honest. Musically, the song was also a peak. The band recorded several takes of the basic track that were all pretty different structurally. They got a solid take and then added some overdubs with John singing on a sped-up track to make his voice sound heavy and slurred when played back at a normal speed. Paul on bass and mellotron, uh, Ringo on drums, George playing lead and slide guitar. Uh, They all had a bunch of other instruments like rhythm guitar, keyboards, bongos, timpani, maracas, etc. on there. John wasn't satisfied, though. Unlike Paul, he couldn't really say specifically what he wanted. He was pretty articulate all the time when talking about, you know, politics and life, but 
for some reason, when it came to his music, he would just say things like, I want it to sound swirlier or dreamier or heavier. And, and he couldn't really put his finger on what he wanted to, it to sound like. He didn't have a really specific vision, just a vibe, just a feeling. So they actually went back to the drawing boards, and the band cut a new basic track. Paul added the Pretty Little Mellotron intro, and George Martin made an arrangement for strings and horns. Lennon, again, wasn't fully satisfied. He liked some parts of both, so he finally decided that he wanted to combine takes 7 and 26. One take of the old arrangement, one take of the new one. The only problem was these two takes were arranged very differently, with different speeds, instruments, and a different key. So combining them was not really possible. But John asked them to do the impossible, and George Martin and Jeff Emmerich had to find a way to connect these two songs to, to, uh, to make it coherent. And like two surgeons, they took the tapes, they spliced them, adjusted the sounds and speeds, and joined them finally ending up with the version of Strawberry Fields Forever that we hear today. John was thrilled with the result and listened to it on repeat. I mean, I think he was right to be so picky. This song is one of my all-time favorite Beatles songs. Some of my favorite George Harrison guitar playings on this song. Uh, it's really subtle, and sometimes you can barely hear it, but it's just so good. And I love the horns. I love the, the strings. It's one of my all-time favorites. Now, for a brief moment, Strawberry Fields Forever was the Beatles song that took the longest to record, by far. That was before the next song that they worked out, Paul's Penny Lane. Penny Lane was an attempt to not one-up John's Strawberry Fields, but to match it and also match Brian Wilson's Pet Sounds. The song took over three weeks to get right. Penny Lane is also a song about nostalgia and childhood memories, though it's purely upbeat and fun. No darkness or dreary psychedelia, just fond memories about growing up in Liverpool with a beautiful melody. The recording of the song was also quite tedious. Every instrument on the song was recorded individually, which was a real annoyance for four-track technology back then, considering how many instruments there were. I mean, there were so many keyboards on the song that they don't really remember, you know, what was each individual uh, keyboard part. They kind of all just blend together. There's also a beautiful classical horn arrangement and a piccolo trumpet solo on it. Paul really wanted to make this a blend between classical and rock and roll, which was really uh, innovative at the time. Paul also added his bass guitar part last, so he could use everything in the song to craft a jubilant and melodic bass line. This was Paul's new approach. After the track had been completed, he would stay around usually until 5 a.m. Uh, and took hours and hours to complete his bass part. You know, songs like Getting Better, Lovely Rita, all these things really just cranking away at the bass part into the wee hours in the morning. Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane were released as double A-side singles in February of 1967. George Martin regrets releasing the songs as singles instead of on the album, saying it was the biggest mistake of his professional career. While it was pretty obviously their best work, and probably their biggest leap forward musically yet, the singles failed to reach the top spot. Instead, they peaked at number two. That may sound like a really successful song, and it was. That's a huge accomplishment to have a number two on the charts, but the Beatles had never failed to reach the top spot with a single since Please Please Me in 1963. The failure to reach number one, along with the weird, trippy nature of the song and the recent year of bad press the Beatles had received, led to a lot of speculation in the media about the Beatles. A lot of articles were written, 
uh, wondering if Beatlemania was over or if the Beatle bubble had finally burst or maybe they went too far, maybe they were washed up. Paul McCartney said, quote, Music papers started to slag us off because Sgt. Pepper took five months to record, and I remember the great glee seeing in one of the papers how the Beatles have dried up. And I was sitting rubbing my hands, saying, you just wait, unquote. And it's true. When they were making Sgt. Pepper, the Beatles couldn't wait to prove everyone wrong. I mentioned earlier in the episode how Paul came across the name Sgt. Pepper. Again, he kind of tucked this away. Uh, He presented the band with this idea, though, that had gradually evolved from that, that instead of thinking like the Beatles and wondering about kind of the show-busy stuff that they had to worry about in albums past, they should pretend like they were another band. They could be more creative and less inhibited. You know, Paul said that when you go to the mic, you're not... Uh, a Beatles singing, you're a member of the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band singing. Now, Paul was really interested in the avant-garde scene, so he wanted to wear these psychedelic Victorian military band outfits, and he loved the name of San Francisco rock bands, uh, like Janis Joplin's Big Brother and the Holding Company, Jefferson Airplane, Quicksilver Messenger Service, these long, kind of inconvenient rock and roll band names. So that's how he came up with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which would be the title and the loose theme of the album. Now, this is considered to be an early concept album for this reason, but the actual Sgt. Pepper theme or concept was not really there for most of the album. Rather, it's kind of a symbol of their commitment uh, to experimentation and their new philosophy in the studio, and the complete listening experience that the album was meant to be. I mean, it, it was kind of like a substitute for a live performance. The songs faded into each other with no real spaces between them. Uh, and it was just really to, supposed to be uh, an album that you sat down and you listened to from beginning to end. Paul had recently tried LSD for the first time, so he was really excited and open to the idea of a really ambitious piece of art. Uh, the only tracks that really fit in with that ambitious Sgt. Pepper theme, though, are the first two songs, the title track, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and the reprise of that song, uh, into With a Little Help from My Friends. The former opens up with an uneasy crowd noise and an orchestra warming up, as if an audience is waiting to see a show. It then goes into a real rocker of a song written and sung by Paul. Paul also plays that piercing lead guitar, intro, and the bass, while the rest of the band kind of files in among the blaring horn section behind him. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band fades into applause as the next act of the show, the fictional Billy Shears singing a song called With a Little Help From My Friends, comes onto the stage. The song is a Beatles classic and was a real collaboration between John and Paul, written specifically for Ringo to sing. Ringo actually tried to get out of singing this one, saying he was too tired the day of the session, but the Beatles were apparently very supportive of the insecure Ringo and cheered him on as he approached the high note at the end of the song. True to the song's meaning, really. 
George apparently said that this is one of the few Sgt. Pepper tracks that was truly a band song with great lead guitar by George, a bass by Paul, and drums by Ringo. Next up on Sgt. Pepper was a John composition, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. John was inspired to write the song when he saw a, dr a drawing by his son, Julian, who drew a picture of a girl and titled it Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. John then wrote a bunch of Alice in Wonderland-themed lyrics and painted this beautiful, cosmic picture. The song is one of Pepper's strongest, and it filled with a bunch of wonderful psychedelic sounds. Now, the song caused pretty much immediate controversy because the initials Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds spelled out LSD, so it received pretty serious condemnations. It was eventually banned from the radio, and it added to the idea that the Beatles were influencing drug use. Now, Lennon himself has denied that the initials were intentionally made to spell out LSD, and I believe him. It's pretty well documented that it did start as a drawing by Julian. Though the trippy lyrics and psychedelic sound pretty clearly convey a druggy meaning, and while it probably wasn't written to spell LSD, it's pretty hard to believe that over the course of a month of recording Lucy in the Sky, nobody noticed the initials. Other than Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, John added only three additional songs. The album's finale, which we'll get to later, and uh, songs called Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite and Good Morning, Good Morning. Both of these songs are pretty good. Mr. Kite was a circus-themed after a poster that John Lennon had in his house and employed a whole bunch of sound effects to make this swirly carnival-themed tune. Good Morning, Good Morning is not a bad song, but definitely one of the album's most forgettable, which is unfortunate because it has some great sound effects and a pretty robust horn section. Paul brings six songs to the album, including one of his first songs ever written, When I'm 64, a charming song that Paul used to sing in Hamburg with a fun horn section. Paul also wrote songs like Lovely Rita, Fixing a Hole, and She's Leaving Home, which are really central to Pepper's sound. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is really considered to be Paul McCartney's greatest musical accomplishment, because he really spearheaded the project. He wrote the most songs, he came up with the concept, and even began to act as a producer, leading to a bit of a power struggle between Paul and George Martin at times. Now, I want to be clear, while Paul was really the catalyst for Pepper, he and John were working really well together at this point in their careers. Maybe the best studio relationship they'd ever have. They were adding essential parts to each other's materials, be it a lyric, instrument, or harmony. John's personality on Paul's songs, and of course vice versa, is central to songs like Lovely Rita, or one of Paul's masterpieces, The Harp Driven She's Living Home. He provides another perspective on the song's story. Getting Better is a great example of the relationship between John and Paul. The song is one of those rockers, a quintessential electric Beatles song, and the whole band sounds great. George and John play great, hard-hitting, uh, distorted guitar parts. George adds that Indian drone on the tambora on top of it as well. And you can also really hear that lovely contrast between uh, John and Paul's lyrical outlook. It, outlook. It's kind of like sweet and sour. You know, Paul sings the optimistic, I have to admit it's getting better, a little better all the time. Then John comes in with It Can't Get No Worse, a little more sour, a little more skeptical. The song was also pretty symbolic of John and Paul's friendship at the time because of something that happened during the recording of it. Now, during the recording sessions for Getting Better, John reached into the Beatles' communal pillbox thinking he was taking an upper. After a bit, he started to get anxious and 
dizzy and scared. George Martin started to ask him if he was all right, and John thought maybe he was just sick. He couldn't focus on the music, mainly because he was frightened of the wires and the microphones. So he started to stare around and eventually was just looking at the ceiling in awe. It eventually occurred to John that he had accidentally, take, accidentally taken LSD. George Martin never would have approved of such behavior in the studio. He just thought John was sick, so he brought him up to the roof to get some air. When the, four, the, the three Beatles realized that John was tripping on the roof, they rushed up to make sure that he didn't fall off. They found him staring at the starry sky, saying, aren't they fantastic? Paul decided to end the session, and he brought John back to his place to crash. Paul took LSD then and there, and it was the second time ever trying the drug, and he had never done it with his friend John. He said he did it to, quote, be with my friend, unquote. Now, the Beatles didn't really bend their minds out of control in the studio for a few reasons. They took music really seriously. It was sacred to them at the time, but also they felt that other drugs, mainly weed, uppers, and the occasional beer, was better for making music than psychedelics and heavy drinking. Plus, whenever they'd get too out there, they found that their music kind of suffered. They were also kind of afraid of George Martin, who, naive though he was, would have really reamed them out for wasting his studio time. George Martin was aware that they smoked pot, but he didn't really know when or what it did. I mean, every single room in 1967 was clouded with cigarette smoke, so a few puffs of marijuana in an ocean of cigarettes probably would have gone unnoticed. George Martin was very involved in the making of Pepper in and out of the control room. Musically, he was always arranging the horns and the classical parts. He was also featured as a musician on many songs. The producer is almost on every song on the album. Martin played harmonium on Mr. Kite, a piano solo on Lovely Rita, keys on Getting Better and Lucy in the Sky, organ on With a Little Help from My Friends, harpsichord on Fixing a Hole, and he did so much more. He really earned his title of fifth Beatle on Sgt. Pepper. Sgt. Pepper was notorious for long sessions, usually starting at 7 p.m. and going until dawn. This was a first. When the Beatles started, they showed up in the morning, recorded a few songs, had lunch, recorded a few more, then went home. On Revolver, they recorded in the afternoon until like 9 or 10. Sgt. Pepper was really fit into their partying schedule. They'd stay up all night partying on off days and sleep during the day. Uh, to the staff's dismay, this became their exact recording schedule in 1967. They were pretty much nocturnal. From now on, Beatles sessions started at night and went until the wee hours. The problem was, for Sgt. Pepper, a lot of this time was dedicated to waiting around. Because there was so much going on, a typical session for Ringo, for example, who really only did percussion parts, would consist of him adding a drum part, waiting a few hours, adding some snare, waiting a few more hours, putting on some maracas or tambourines, maybe a backing vocal, redo a section, and then so on. Ringo said of the sessions, quote, The biggest memory I have of Sgt. Pepper is, I learned how to play chess, unquote. George, like Ringo, was also on the sidelines for much of the Pepper sessions. Of the sessions, George said, quote, It was becoming difficult for me because I wasn't really into that. 
It became an assembly process, just little parts then overdubbing. And for me, it became a bit tiring and a bit boring. I had a few moments on there that I enjoyed, but generally I didn't really like that album that much. I just got back from India, and my heart was still out there, unquote. As you can tell, some lead playing was played by Paul, like on Sgt. Pepper and Good Morning, Good Morning. George wasn't really playing a lot of guitar during this period, so it's not surprising that his role was limited. You know, when he had a contribution, usually it was something Indian. Some things, some songs don't feature George at all, and others have him playing a really minimal part, maybe a harmonica or a maraca or a backing vocal. George did have some shining moments on Pepper as a real rock and roller, though. He adds some really strong, fuzzy lead guitar on Fixing a Hole, and his solo on that song is delightful, one of my favorite solos of his. George was still very much developing as a songwriter at this point, and he wasn't immune to writing a bad song. Now, Revolver, he got three songs, but this one he only got one. And that has a lot to do with because of the quality of the songs he was bringing. The first song he brought to the session was Only a Northern Song, a pretty weak tune overall. The band tried to record it, and they eventually released it in 68, but it was decided that Only a Northern Song just wasn't strong enough for the album, and George Martin asked George Harrison to bring in a new song for the sessions. The next song that George brought in was the Indian style Within You, Without You. Now, when he first presented the song idea, I think the Beatles kind of collectively eye-rolled, George was really doing a lot of Indian stuff, and, you know, they didn't dislike it. They liked that type of music, but it just really kind of was clashing with what they were trying to do at the time. So they kind of left George to it. He did his own thing, and they would decide uh, if they liked the song when it was finished. George had a bunch of Indian classical musicians come in, and the other four Beatles really were not involved to any degree. George was really into the song and showed an excitement and enthusiasm that wasn't there for most of the rest of the album. The song's lyrics were influenced by Indian philosophy, and the song was covered with Indian instruments like Dilruba, Tambura, Tabla, Swarmandal. When the track was complete, the other Beatles who weren't featured on the final product were really impressed with how it turned out, and Within, within You, Without You, in my opinion, adds a lot of texture to Sgt. Pepper and is one of Harrison's strongest Beatles songs. The best song on Sgt. Pepper is the last song on Sgt. Pepper. It's one of the greatest pop songs ever written, and it's called A Day in the Life. The transition from Sgt. Pepper reprise to A Day in the Life is seamless, leading into John Lennon strumming an acoustic, singing I Read the News Today, Oh Boy, about a lucky man who made the grave. John Lennon wrote this song allegedly about Tara Brown, the heir to the Guinness fortune and acquaintance of the Beatles, who died in a car accident in 1966. This is what John would do with a lot of his lyrics. He'd see a headline or a poster like on Mr. Kite and write a song about it. When Lennon first brought the song to the studio, early in the Sgt. Pepper sessions, everybody was gobsmacked, and George Martin apparently got the chills during Lennon's vocal performance. Everyone knew that this had to be a really big song, but it was pretty incomplete sounding. It was really just John on acoustic and Paul on piano and some overdubs. Paul had a completely unrelated bit, that part that goes, get up, got out of bed, uh, dragged a comb across my head, which uh, the band added between the two sections of John's portion. In this way, it was really a Lennon-McCartney collaboration. But there was still something missing. John and Paul knew that they wanted to include some avant-garde crescendo, so they kept 24 bars of silence between two sections of the song, with the idea that they'd add an orchestra there. 
Now, originally they wanted just an orchestra that would improvise a chaotic bit in the middle, but George Martin, who was really wary of the cost and impracticality of hiring an orchestra for a project like this in the first place, told them that orchestras don't just improvise, and they'd have to have some direction. So then Paul came up with the idea that the orchestra would play the lowest note on their instrument and work their way up to the highest note at their own pace. Now, I can just picture George Martin rolling his eyes, but reluctantly and nervously, George Martin arranged for an orchestra to come in and play. The Beatles wanted this to be a big event, a, a 60s happening, a fun party. And since they weren't playing, just watching the orchestra, they decorated the studio with Indian decorations and psychedelic lights and invited some of their friends. Mick Jagger, Brian Jones, and Keith Richards of The Stones came. Donovan came, and Graham, Ma- Graham Nash, later of CSNY, came, the Beatles' wives and girlfriends, etc. As the orchestra players began to file in, they were given masks, hats, gorilla paws, fake noses, funny glasses. Also, they looked kind of silly and trippy while they were playing. You can still see all this on the music video on YouTube. Of course, George Martin was nervously trying to explain what he wanted the orchestra to do. They really had no idea what was expected of them. Orchestra players are very specific. They don't just riff. Um, so after corralling them a few times, they kind of got the freeform, chaotic idea of it, and they ended up playing an intense, dissonant crescendo, which is on the record today. I mean, the final product is magnificent, and I'm sure it caused its fair share of LSD-induced psychosis when it was heard on the record, but arguably, this historic achievement is probably the best way to close an album. And later, the Beatles added... Uh, Uh, layers and layers of a piano chord to end the song with a huge bang. The album the Beatles just made was filled with some of their most experimental rock and roll songs, Indian music and classical music, ending with the psychedelic crescendo of A Day in the Life, and it was truly a masterpiece, and became the soundtrack to the 1967 Summer of Love, because it came out in May of that year. It caused its fair share of controversy, and a lot of the songs were banned from the radio. Lucy in the Sky because of the LSD thing, A Day in the Life because both of the lyric I'd Love to Turn You On and Paul's lyric about How to Smoke and I Went Into a Dream because it was believed to be a drug reference. Of course, the druggy nature of many of the lyrics and the drug-obsessed culture at the time overanalyzed the lyrics, uh, which were printed on the back of the album sleeve, another first at the time, and every lyric was overanalyzed and, oh, it's a drug reference, oh, this means this, this means that. The cover is also pretty notable. It has the Beatles in their Sgt. Pepper costumes standing in front of a collage of famous faces. Some of them include Bob Dylan, Karl Marx, Marilyn Monroe, wax sculptures of the Beatles during Beatlemania, and you can even see a doll wearing a Rolling Stones t-shirt. I mean, you could really notice a new detail on this album uh, pretty much every time you look. No controversy, though, or album cover could take away from the quality of the music. Uh, it was the most commercially successful Beatles album and spent over 20 weeks at number one, over three months, and stayed on the charts the whole rest of the year. It was also lauded by critics as one of the greatest pop musical accomplishments ever. Now, last week I said Revolver changed everything, and it did, but Sgt. Pepper was the first time, really, that rock and roll albums were considered serious works of art, not just edgy pieces of music. Concept albums, art rock, classical elements, psychedelia became a staple of rock and roll after Sgt. Pepper. And the Beatles, who were arguably the most famous band in the world, somehow got more famous. The trouble now was they had to try to top Sgt. Pepper with their next projects. 
Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't miss next week. We talk about some big changes that happened to the Beatles. Please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast and share us with all your rock and roll loving friends. Until next week, do yourself a favor and listen to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band.